coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Man, those little towns around Rockport and Aransas Pass, man, they have got the best seafood down there. It's very reasonable. And then you can just pop in any little bar down there and you might hear a you know Stevie Ray Vaughan type guitar player. And that's a fun trip. You, know, you can rent a, a SUV in any of the airports and throw in two or three buddies and off you go. And, you know, you could do a week down there for about 600 bucks. That was Brian O'Keefe taking us into Texas, doable destinations, photography tips, and Idaho today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. One quick way to support this podcast is to share out a previous episode that you've loved and you know somebody who would also uh, love to get that information and check out that podcast. Share it out. Really easy to do in whatever app you're using right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Zag.Fish, who creates ethically sourced premium fly tying materials with their 5D brushes. These are the Fairflies brushes that we've talked about before. Zag.Fish is the place you can go to pick up Fairflies products and the other stuff they have going on in the fly tying uh, niche. 5D brushes contain the perfect portions to tie great streamer, bass flies, saltwater flies, and we're going to be using some of these flies even more as we do some of these saltwater trips. You can check out uh, zag.fish right now by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash zag. That's Z-A-G. We're also sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, who has superior quality products, great prices, and a great YouTube channel. You can check them out right now by heading over at either Togan's Fly Shop on YouTube and check out the new uh, videos they have this week. Or you can go directly to Togan's at wetflyswing.com slash Togan's and they'll help you get started. Whether you're just beginning, they've got some training tutorials in fly tying or if you've been tying a while, they've got a good selection of materials and some unique stuff over there. Check them out right now. Togan's Fly Shop. Brian O'Keefe is back on the podcast with an update on his traveling adventures we discover and hear about what his uh, his Iceland trip was all about and how that went down. We get a little rundown on his top destination trips that uh, we should all be thinking about. We kind of get a, a like a top 10 list here. And, uh, and we go back and we hear about why he moved to Idaho. He joined, uh, left Oregon, went to Idaho, and he's loving the move out east. And uh, we talk about that today. So Lots of good stuff. Brian was on the podcast uh, quite a while back, and we're going to get a, a nice little uh, check-in on his travel and everything he has going on right now. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here we go. Brian O'Keefe. How's it going, Brian? It's going great. Enjoying my new digs in eastern Idaho. Oh, eastern Idaho. Are, did you uh, did you make a move? Yeah. You know, I, I was in central Oregon forever. I moved there in 1975, and it was basically utopia, you know, it was just great, uncrowded skiing, nobody at boat ramps or on the lakes, but, you know, things changed, people move around and Ben grew, and as it grew, I moved a little farther out of town, and, uh, you know, I was up on the Metolius for a while, and in the little town of Sisters, and then over by the Crooked River, and then, you know, I made a move to far eastern Oregon, right on the Snake River border with Idaho, and Oh, wow. 20 minutes from the Owyhee River, 
which is quite well known for its brown trout fishery. And then just four minutes to the Snake River to a boat ramp, which had fantastic smallmouth bass fishing. And then there were desert reservoirs and other streams out in that area. And, and uh, that's kind of during, you know, the main COVID, say two oh, okay. years of COVID. And it was a great place to hunker down, just a nice little agricultural community and uh-huh. uh, year-round fishing and a little bit of skiing. So, uh, yeah, I was over there for a couple of years. And then uh, the house I was renting was sold during the, you know, the quote boom. And uh, I started looking for other places in the area. There was just nothing. Either rents were incredibly high or there just wasn't anything. And so I looked and broadened my search. And pretty soon, you know, I had this sort of magnetic pull to get back to places I would road trip to fish like the henry's fork and the south fork of the snake and the madison and um started looking in eastern idaho and sure enough you know and i you know i dave i i kind of live a trout bomb lifestyle i i know i don't have to be have a big foundation big house or anything i i like kind of being mobile so i found a nice little spot outside of rexburg um and so i'm 15 minutes from the South Fork of the Snake, about 25 minutes to the Teton River, and a half hour to really good water on the Henry's Fork. And then just a little farther would be Hebgen Lake, oh, the yeah. Madison. Henry's Lake is really fun. You probably saw that picture of that, you know, 20 pound cutthroat uh, oh, yeah. that just broke the state record. That was amazing. And so I've even got a good bass lake. And uh, so this is home now. And yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like Central Oregon in a way. The winters are kind of long, but, uh, you know, I can work basically anywhere there's internet. So uh, nothing's really preventing me from maybe heading to a little bit slightly warmer place with either some bass or some redfish or who knows what. But, uh, yeah, yep, I'm, I'm, I might be 68 years old, but I'm still a trout bum. Wow. That's awesome. I love it. So you're still going for it. And and so I love that it's Eastern Idaho too, because I've been talking to a few people. We've been, you know, I've been through Idaho many times and fished out there and it is a cool place. It's kind of, it's kind of tucked in, in the middle, right? You've got all these, it's surrounded by, you know, Montana and Wyoming and Utah and all these states, but you got this, like, what is it about Idaho you think that makes it kind of cool and unique? I think there's just so much water in this area and there's some things that make it unique that aren't very good. I mean, politically, it's mm. not exactly my oh, cup right. of tea. This isn't necessarily yeah. my tribe, but I'm, I'm more in the fishing community anyway, and they yeah. tend to trend in different directions. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, if I just drive an hour and a quarter east, I'm in Wyoming, and an hour and a half, I'm in West Yellowstone, Montana. And then there's dirt roads that, geez, even locals don't know about <laughs> that, that just take off from other forest service dirt roads. And you can drive into Yellowstone on a dirt road oh, and, no and be in absolute back country. And there's Amazing. cool little streams in there, or you can take a dirt road up over the continental divide into Montana. And there's streams and lakes over there that are really, God, really off the beaten path, you know? So I think the most unique thing is that my, my hardest thing is where to go because there's so many choices. And even though we're having nighttime, this is, you know, kind of late October. So we're having nighttime time temperatures, even in the low twenties, but if it warms up to 38 to 40, 
you know, there'll be bluing olives and uh, there's always streamer fishing. And, you know, it, it's interesting because let, let's take the salmon fly hatch, you know, because in Oregon, you know, our famous sam salmon fly hatch is the Deschutes yep. and then parts of the Rogue River. And generally it's pretty, you know, once you get it dialed in, you know, kind of where it begins down maybe by mopping and moves up river to warm springs and lingers in certain areas a little longer. But over here, when you have four or five rivers with a salmon fly hatch, um, the timing's all different. So you might be on the lower South Fork of the Snake at first, and you might move up to the Teton in the old Teton Dam area, the dam that blew out. And then you got to hit the Henry's Fork by Ashton. Then you might come back to the South Fork of the Snake, going up the canyon towards Palisades. And yeah, so there's more diversity. Yeah, it just it's just this the timing that you know you need to live here 30 years to really understand that kind of timing specifically to a hatch, and that would apply to green drakes and PMDs and things like that too. So I've fished over here since I had a driver's license, but I always hopped around you know i'd i'd go fish the owyhee then the south fork of the boise then the lost river then the beaverhead and loop around to the madison and the henry's fork and then go home and hitting a river for a day or two once a year you know that's a wonderful thing in itself but you don't accumulate that intimate knowledge of a watershed the hatches the the you know whether rivers are high medium or low what to do when so it's actually fun to be you know kind of in a beginner mode you know that's I what mean, you feel like yeah you know i've got some skills and i got tons of gear but i have to learn the timing and that's really fun because you know i don't like to be a one-trick pony i've always skied or windsurfed or did other things and so it's fun to be in that learner's curve of a new hobby, a new sport, any sort of recreation. And I kind of have that here a little bit and it's fun to crack the code on stuff that you hadn't done before. Like right now um, is the pseudo, you know, it's not necessarily a blowing olive, but it, people call it a pseudo blowing olive. And it's, it's a tiny, almost half a size larger than a trico, smaller than most blowing olives. And it's a tricky hatch. It's very sporadic. And you can be in the right spot on the right day. And the fish get so selective. Because it's an interesting little mayfly. You know, it comes off the bottom. And as it emerges, it actually hatches out of the nymphal shuck underwater. And is literally a swimming dun. Oh, wow. Yeah, even if it hatches just an inch or two below the surface, it's still drifting down river as a sunken live adult climbs out through the surface film and then off it goes. And so I fished last night. Well, I shouldn't say last night because night is now about six o'clock, but late yesterday afternoon till almost dark, beautiful sunset. And, you know, I tied up this fly. It's just very simple. It's a small little olive biot body on a size 20 hook. And there's a little tiny tuft of, of gray marabou to imitate an adult wing underwater, you know? So it was kind of a, you know, back in the day, they used to have this fly called a flimph 
Oh yeah, the flip. That was Hayfleet. Or was that Hayfleet's fly? One of those guys. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of half dry, half wet, you know. And yep. so this is actually a match the hatch, pretty cool deal. I use a spotter fly, you know, like a a high vis parachute, bluing yep. olive in about a oh, right. sixteen something. I can see in this low light, and then yeah. So that'd be your indicator, like a dropper. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So then a yep. three feet of six x to this, and sometimes seven x to this little ascending done. I really don't know the proper word for it, but yeah, we kind of cracked the code last night on it with, you know, three or four good fish. And, uh, you know, so someone like myself who's fished since they were eight years old and had a, you know, I think we talked about this last time was, you know, my granddad was a strict dry fly purist, bamboo rod, silk line, all that stuff. So I've been fishing a long time and pretty, serious about it not just uh here and there so it's fun to do something new and actually be going back to the vice and tweaking stuff and and uh so i'm sort of a kid in the candy shop here with so many different opportunities and <laughs> it's amazing is the dry fly still are they still to you uh the most challenging kind of technique or are there other you know when you compare it to like wet flies or streamers or any of the other stuff or whatever nymphing yeah you know yes and no in that uh, some dry fly fishing is pretty darn simple. You know, you get on a nice PMD hatch in a riffle, uh, you know, you could be on the South Fork of the Snake, the Missouri, anywhere. And that's not too technically difficult. You can fish upstream or at least side stream quite a bit. Um, Got to be able to cast okay and, and put the fly within a foot of where the fish is probably holding, you know, on, on its drift. But but then when you get into more reach casts and downstream slack line presentations, I mean, that's just a blast. Um, you, you know, you're definitely probably working a fish that's got a little more uh, river savvy than, than say just a riffle fish. But uh, at times, you know, fishing emergers and, and, the, and, and some nymphing can be very challenging, very technical because, you know, the fish has got a pretty good look at your fly. You know, up on the surface, it's kind of bouncing around. There's light sparkling off it and stuff. So, um, and, you know, and then, you know, streamer fishing has its challenges too because sometimes it's difficult because of wind or longer casts. Uh, yeah. It's it's more of a, it's a little more bubba than yeah. dry fly fishing. But, <laughs> it, you know, it has its place. Yeah. So, you know, I so think you do a little bit of everything. Yeah, and I think it's half the fun is really having the right cast, being in the right position. Um, you know, the subtle things, because if you go with a guide, you don't know all the time that he's actually positioning you as a, as a wading angler or as a boat angler in exactly the right spot to make a perfect presentation. You're not just randomly dropping the anchor or like, oh, there's a fish cast. You know, he's going to put you in a spot. So you can make a reach cast, shake a little slack on it or high stick or whatever technique you're using. And so I think it's kind of fun just to be always using, you know, fly fishing is kind of a mental game. It's physical. Uh, yeah, we've all kind of slipped off a trail or tumbled or fallen mm -hmm. in. I mean, it's, yeah. it cracks me up when people say, oh, you like to fish. I, I, I don't. I'm just not that patient. And I always think, huh, patience. Patience is uh, an ingredient for probably a lousy fisherman, you know, so. Right. I like to kind of get after it and wade and, 
and, and that's true and just i know work all the puzzle pieces whether it's position fly tip it type of cast type of drift and and that all just comes together because you know have you ever if you play tennis or golf and someone says, oh, I play tennis. And, you know, they just doink the ball back to you with a high lob, bonk, bonk, bonk. Oh, right. And that's just not fun. You know, you play with no. someone who hits it hard. And, no, you got to whack it. Yeah, it's that's when tennis becomes fun. Otherwise, it's just kind of hitting a ball. And golfing, when you're always looking for your ball or it's out of bounds or in someone's yard, I mean, then it's frustrating and not much fun. Yeah. But when you actually kind of get the hang of it and keep it in the middle, you know, golf is sort of fun. And I think that's kind of how fly fishing is. It's sort of a weird funky sport you know i got this long rod and this weird line and you don't really cast the fly you cast the line and but when it also comes together basically through casting and and some time on the water and fly selection you know then you kind of you know you up your game and it's really more fun and then i think after that you look for challenging situations that's why a lot of people who have fished all over you might see them in an airport so where were you so i was down in the Yucatan fishing for permit because that person needs that challenge, you know, and, and it's fun. The Henry's fork is just like that. There's days where, you know, you're like a, a like a hot windless day. Um, in the summer, you're looking for a few fish and then, you know, no two days are the same. You might be on up there on a cloudy day and green drakes are popping and you see a hundred rising fish. So yeah, um, that's know. on. I'm kind of rambling, Dave. I hope you're keeping up with me. No, this is good. Well, let me let me just first start. I'm going to take it back. Just episode 78 was the episode we had you on a while back. We'll put a link to the show notes there. Um, but I did want to touch base. I mean, I think it's interesting to me, like you said, kind of off air, you kind of received an email from somebody who was, you know, asking about this, this life you have, you know, and it is pretty cool that you've been traveling. I'm curious with what you've been doing now you're in Eastern Idaho. You know, do you find yourself now, as you kind of, you mentioned, you're 68, kind of, uh, you know, not doing as much travel or not liking it as much as you get a little bit older? Like, and you can, I mean, because you're like looking that you said, like, right, 1960s was when you were like getting started on this. How has that looked over time? Are, are you just 100% go, go, go still? Well, I'm definitely go, go, go on fishing, and it doesn't really matter. It can be bluegills, smallmouth bass, pike. It doesn't matter. I love it all. Um, still traveling quite a bit. Uh, you know, I work for 11 Angling. It's part of 11 Experience. And so we've got these really cool lodges in Iceland and Chile and New Zealand and Colorado and looking at new places all the time. So, yeah, there's sort of forms of traveling. I suppose one would be just vacation, having fun, going on fishing trips. And then my kind of travel also, which is sort of work-related, which was even before working for 11 and doing Catch Magazine with Todd Moan, uh, you know, we were traveling to make videos and, and produce photo essays for the magazines. And, and you know, that's kind of work. And it's even a little bit stressful when you got a kind of a big, expensive project and the weather is horrible or there's some sort of other high water issues or, you know, if you're doing steelhead or salmon and the fish just aren't there. So, yep. you know, I, I do a lot of work fishing and fishing trips. Um, and still, uh, you won't hear me complain too much. You know, I have the opportunity right now to go to some pretty amazing spots and there's definitely work to do and there's definitely some responsibilities, but yeah. What is that work when you're doing that? Oh, what is the, yeah, I mean, you're, you're going, I mean, I, I always think of like hosted trip. Is that kind of what this is or what does that look like with 11 angling? Um, yeah, I don't do a lot of, you know, true hosted trips. I will support 
magazine editors and writers. So uh, in Chile last year, I was with Ross Purnell of Fly Fisherman. And then, uh, you know, good working relationship with Tom Byatt, the Drake. And then in about a month, I'll be heading down to New Zealand to Cedar Lodge with uh, the fishing editor of Gray Sporting Journal. And so those aren't technically hosted trips, but they're sort of partnerships where, you know, we want them to have a great trip, get great photos. And uh, then they'll produce, obviously, nice articles. And, and uh, that's pretty fun. And mm-hmm. looking forward to that, that trip. And then, uh, so I'm mostly still doing photos. But, you know, when you're taking an editor somewhere, you, you work on logistics, make sure everybody gets, you know, the right flights and and all that stuff. But so not as much travel, you know, and just sort of bumming around the Bahamas or Mexico as I used to. And you know, you asked me if I like to travel. I said, "Well, I do when I get there, but I'm, you know, I don't know too many people who enjoy the airport experience." Or- oh, so yeah, that's it. Well, that's the question because we're, you know, we've been getting into some of that now. It's been pretty cool the last, you know, this year and last year, and now even more next year. And um, I kind of do love all ends of the travel. You know what I mean? Even even sometimes the airport. You know what I mean? Like just it's that experience out there, but. Um, and of course, getting there, that's why I love talking to, you know, to you here, because just here in the background of, you know, you're, you know, just a little bit older than me and, and here the experiences that you're still going strong. You know what I mean? That's, that's pretty awesome. And, and do you look, as you look ahead out, you know, say the next five, 10 years, do you, do you see yourself kind of just continuing? Um, you know, obviously you never know where, where this goes, but doing the same thing and, and kind of still traveling? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, currently, you know, the way I work and I work remote anywhere I can get Wi-Fi, I can work. Um, that is a great thing. And so, you know, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of photography, you know, producing things that people take for granted, like their pre-trip information and, you know, a lot of logistics, a lot of that's minutia detail. You just have to work out, give it to our copywriter, give it to our graphic designers, let them then make printed materials, websites, blog posts, et cetera. Well, you know, if you're doing a good job uh, with the text and with the photos, uh, it's sort of ageless. I mean, I could be 45, and if because my people are all, all over the country, Bozeman, Colorado, Florida, etc. And so we never see each other face to face very often. And so, yeah, I'm 68, but if I'm getting the work done, I mean, it's sort of ageless. Yeah, I'd like to do it for for as long as I like to. I love the people I work with. God, they're just talented, and it's kind of fun working with people in their late twenties and thirties who are just super energetic and going for it. So yeah. I I just enjoy the company so much. I I could just keep doing this, and yeah, you know, I don't know too many people that say that about where they work when they're ready to retire. I think most people are ready to hang it up, and yeah. Exactly. Hang it up. That That's what's cool about what you're doing, you know, because it's like the retiring thing. I think maybe it was different a while ago, but now it's kind of like, you know, retiring is kind of just old stuff, right? Like why retire? I mean, just keep doing what you love. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. I feel, I feel kind of honored to work with the people I work with. They're, they're just such cool people and you know, yeah, I'm going to keep it going for a while. It's fun. Today's episode is sponsored by Country Financial. The fires in the Northwest and throughout the West in in the last few years have been devastating for thousands of people. 
those folks, some folks have lost their homes, their belongings, and their sense of safety has all been challenged. This is why insurance and protecting your assets are so critical. Dalton at Country Financial is here, and he was on the front lines during the fires, handing out checks to Country Financial community members, providing drinks, food, and more. And each time Dalton meets up with a client, he does an extensive review of their current assets and coverage. This is his opportunity to really decide and let you know what you need uh, to make educated decisions for your insurance needs. This is a super critical piece, and Dalton Roy Roy loves it. He loves getting out in the rural community, connecting with people, loves the outdoors, fishing, hunting, everything that goes with it. And so I'm excited to be sharing uh, Country Financial and Dalton with you. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets and life are protected. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash country right now to get started. That's C-O-U-N-T-R-Y. Check out Dalton and support this podcast in a great local company right now. Well, let's look. I just want to look back a little bit because I know we talked a little bit about on your past, you know, kind of some of the trips. But when you look back at what you've done over the years and you've been all over the, the world, what do you think, you know, it, you're working with Eleven Angling now and, and all the that experience. Are there a few trips that you, if you had to tell somebody like, okay, these are a few of the trips that you definitely have to go on. Um, you know, and everybody's different, but I think of myself, like, I just look at all these trips and be like, and I'm thinking like, man, I would love to go on every single one of these trips, but I can't. So if I had to narrow it down to a few, you know, what would those be? What do you think for you? What would those be? Yeah. Is it a mix between salt and fresh? Yeah. Another great question. I, I actually get a question like that quite often from people. It's maybe phrased into what's your favorite place or what's your favorite fish, which is actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't really like that. Yeah. Let's phrase it differently. Yeah, you did. I like the way you did it because there's lots of options out there. And I, and I suppose if you could call it like a generic bucket list. Yeah. Um, I, I think as a fly angler, everyone should do uh, sight fishing in New Zealand and, um, you know, go with a guide and, and really get that technique figured out, the spotting, the stocking, making a good cast. It's not all that terribly difficult because you don't cast super far and you, you know, you kind of know the zone you need to have your fly land in, but you know, you can get a little nervous and pretty soon what your brain tells you to do your arm with the rod doesn't (laughs) always do it, you know? So, you know, it's fun to kind of have that slight bit of pressure because you're not going to catch 20 fish a day. You're hoping for three or four, but they're Uh great and incredible fish. And so I think checking New Zealand off the box is, uh, really, really fun. And then jungle fishing, uh, peacock bass, mm. arapaima, um, other fish like that, uh, golden dorado. So that's mostly South right. America. Um, yep. yeah, that, that's pretty neat, you know, and it yep, doesn't, for sure. you don't need to do it every year, but maybe going after those three fish on two or three trips would be something to really accomplish. Um, and I also would put generally the Patagonia region of South America, mm. Argentina and Chile, um, yep. just because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of cliche. You hear it all the time. It's like Montana 50 years ago, but actually right. there's, there's rivers that I've been fishing lately that are like Montana a hundred years ago. And they really have oh, wow. no pressure. 
it's a dry fly all day. You know, you probably get 50 mm -hmm. eats a day. And just, it's the combination. It's kind of like New Zealand. We have the amazing scenery, super nice yep. people, great food, wine and beer. Right. Um, and it's also in our winter, their summer. So mm, perfect. Yep. I like that aspect too. And then there's still so much I'd like to do. I don't know if I'll ever get to it, but yeah, you've probably heard about, you know, like the big pike in Sweden. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd love to do that. Yeah. Yep. And, um, uh, oh geez. You know, we've got a lodge in Iceland. So I've, I never oh, yeah. really yeah, thought it's... I'd be an Atlantic salmon guy because it's sort of out of my price range, you know, and, Yep. And I've lived on or near steelhead and salmon rivers my whole life. So, you know, I've, yeah. I've had a lot of that, but I've. Did you guys do that up there? Was that Iceland? Was that focused on Atlantic salmon? Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lodge that's got a river right in the backyard and then yeah. two other that are leased. Cause you know, Iceland's all private property. There's no yeah. forest service or BLM. It's all farms or ice. And, uh, so you get your rivers and you, you know, get, get your lease there on them and, and stuff. And, and I found that, uh, Atlantic salmon were pretty cool. You know, they, they're more playful than steelhead. They, hmm. they'll follow a fly swirl mm, on it. Kind of like summer steelhead more. Yeah. Yeah. Four or five swirls. I've had fairly large salmon jump over my fly, big arc over the top of the flag. Like, and then you know, switch flies, change techniques, riffling hitch. Duh, duh, duh. And, and then you might get a grab on your eighth, swing and yeah, i just like that cool. kind of cat and mouse game they play with you and you know just being in iceland it's so spectacularly beautiful and yep. you don't see anyone around um that's just an, a great experience and and then there's sea run browns in fact on this last trip about three weeks ago um we uh fished this river called the Hoosie, and mm -hmm. in one pool we got Atlantic salmon, chrome bright sea run browns up to about four and a half, five pounds, and resident browns. So, oh wow, man, that's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, that's you know? amazing. That's really fun. Yeah. So Iceland's a big one. So you got, and you just talked. I mean, New Zealand, South America, Patagonia, Sweden, Iceland. Yeah. I mean, those are five spots that are you know all around the world. That pretty much for sure that those are all. <laughs> I mean. Would you look at those? I mean, you've been all around Alaska too and North America. I mean, are, are there any trips around? I guess you could throw in Russia maybe there, but are there any trips around North America or closer to home that you think are at a similar level to those those five? Oh, yeah. There's great fishing all around the country, especially when you include salt saltwater from Texas to Maine and parts of the Pacific coast. But, um, you know, for me, I've I've always wanted to spend some time on Lake Superior in that area. Oh yeah, you know, smallmouth bass and some big browns, and there's some carp mm -hmm. flats, and I think the Great Lakes have just tons of opportunity from our side and the Canadian side. And I've just always been fascinated by the the town. I've never seen it, but Thunder Bay—it's just such a cool sound. Um, uh -huh. I'd like to look in that area a little bit. Um, you know, uh -huh. Michigan's got some fantastic fishing. I've fished uh, bass, pike, and muskie a lot in uh, Minnesota oh, and yeah. the driftless area, Wisconsin. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. But uh, man, there's just good fishing everywhere. And and you know who who would think that here I am minutes away from the Henry's Fork that I would have a bass <laughs> lake, you know? Yeah. At 35 miles away, out in the middle of nowhere, dirt road. And it's just all cattails and reeds and 
and it's got huge bass, you know? So I think every county in the country probably has some really good fishing and it could be carp. It could be bass. It could be cutthroat mm -hmm. trout, you know? So uh, we still have the most affordable country to fish in really mm. food yep. uh, accommodation. Now, gas is a little different now, but, right. um, but it's still a, I mean, the American, fly fishing road trip is still one of the best yeah, fishing experiences in the world. And what would be that road trip? I mean, I think about it, I guess if you're on the West or the East, but what do you think that road trip did? Let's take it there for a little bit. So now you've got, you know, I don't know, a couple months, right? You say you take off in the late summer, fall before the winter hits. What would that road trip look like for you? Um, well, in the past I've done a big trip every, uh, every year, but it was for steelhead. So I would, really go from the Canadian border to the California border and fish the Western side of Washington and Oregon, you know, the Olympic peninsula all the way down the, to Umpqua to the rogue. And then I'd circle back more of the inland rivers, you know, like the Deschutes and the John day and the grand Ronde and, and get up into Washington on the Wenatchee and the Metow when they're open and sometimes hit the clear water in Idaho. But mm -hmm. you know, that's a wonderful, fall trip yeah. we just haven't had the runs of fish that uh, could support you know that being a real fun and successful trip still it's car camping um or cheap hotels or a little camper trailer and you know really a great trip the fall colors are out and it's just a great lifestyle and yeah that's the West Coast. So you could pretty much all everything you talk there is like West Coast Steelhead. You could do that. You could spend months just doing that, right? Oh yeah. And then and then Florida's got so much water on both coasts and down in the Keys. There's still places to get out and wade and to paddleboard and and you know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind of talking from more of a fish bum perspective. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. Tons of guides and stuff, but you can do the Grand Slam, right? Down in Florida, you can go down there and get the big species down and some huge tarpon. Yeah. And, you know, there's just so many estuaries with snook and jacks and redfish. Um, all that stuff is just great. And then, you know, the Texas coast, well, then let's just stop in Louisiana this time of the year for the big bull reds and harder to do, do it yourself. It's definitely a boating scene, but there's a few spots that you can explore in a kayak. And, and then when you get down to Texas, you know, there's a, that's great kayak fishing and, there's great wade fishing and that goes all the way to the Mexican border. There's just, there's redfish the whole length of the Texas coast. And, uh, and there's pockets of places where you'll find some tarpon and there's pockets where you find some big jacks and things like that. But, you know, you know, Texas is a very reasonable state to fish in. The hotels on the coast are fairly inexpensive. Food's great. I mean, you don't really hear about seafood and Texas going hand in hand. It's more of a steak and, barbecue scene but man those little towns around rockport and arancis pass oh, nice yeah they have got the best seafood down there and it's very reasonable and then you can just pop in any little bar down there and you might hear a you know stevie ray vaughn type guitar player and that's a fun trip you know, you can rent a, a suv in any of the airports and throw in two or three buddies and off you go and you know you could do a week down there for about 600 bucks. No kidding. Uh, yeah. Just cruise around Texas yeah. and just hit some like, yeah, I mean, mainly you'd, so what would you be, if you went to Texas, what would be your, the species you'd be focusing on? Probably redfish. And, um, I have some friends who guide there and some of the best guides in the world are 
Texas. God, they're just the coolest people and great backgrounds, great history. But there's also these, you know, canoe trails they have uh, up in the estuaries and they're sort of, you know, marked with little poles in the water where you can keep going up through these places. But there's oyster bars nearby and you'll see tailing reds and you'll see nervous water and, and you can rent a kayak or a canoe almost anywhere. And that's just a blast. You know, that's just a fun trip. It's fun day and night. And, uh, that's it. And then you got, so you got Texas, you got Florida, and then you can go up through the, the inner mountain West, right. And hit all the, everything like we're kind of where you are now, right. You get into Idaho, Montana, you got all that. And, and then you mentioned at the bit, the Great Lakes, that's a huge chunk. Oh, yeah. um, and then we talked to somebody, uh, we talked to Abby Schuster uh, here recently and, and you know, Martha's Vineyard, right? You, you go mm-hmm. out to the coast, there's that whole thing and there's, yeah, it, it is pretty diverse. I guess you don't realize you start to think about the bucket list trips and I guess the destination travel, do you think it's kind of focused on saltwater or what's your take there? Do you think it's more leaning towards salt than it is the freshwater stuff? Well, you know, when you look at the big destination booking agents, Frontiers, Yellow Dog, Flywater Travel, the Fly Shop in Reading. Um, their catalogs now are pretty diversified with salt and fresh, um, regional, national, and international. There's just something for everybody. And I mean, all those catalogs or websites, you can just drool over them. My God, yeah. there's just so many great places. And I've been lucky because I've either been sent to a lot of those places by magazines and and the actual booking agents to develop a library of photos for them. And and so, but in my true heart, I'm a trout bum on a budget. And and so, you know, you might I, I use those catalogs and I look at spots and then I might get on Google Earth and you know, there's a tiny little town there. You know, maybe I can find a guy that'll rent a skiff or something. So I've right. done that's, quite a bit of that. Cool. It's not as common as it used to be. You used to be able to get a little Boston whaler in the Bahamas, a 25 horse outboard for 50 bucks, you know, oh, and wow. you could be, you know, using Google Earth, finding little jungle <laughs> streams or mangrove lagoons, and, and you could really fish cheap. It's still probably available, just a little harder to find, but, uh, you know, I still have a, the mentality of doing it on the cheap, but I, have had fun thanks to those companies I just mentioned of getting you know the Kamchatka and have you been down you've been down to Kamchatka yeah I did two rivers in Kamchatka one was a float and camp and the other one was a float with cabins and uh just you know it's everything you hear you know the mousing's unbelievable yeah fishing Dalai Lamas for big big rainbows and you know it's just like Alaska in a way that you know have the same kind of weather and you have yeah. big bears and um but you don't see any float planes any other people it's truly an amazing yeah. wilderness experience and uh, who knows when that will ever come back but yeah so that's totally yeah that's still locked down completely right yeah and i just think you know morally socially that's the yeah. last place i'd want to go yeah 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 that's right Gotcha. Well, you, you mentioned photos. I want to touch on that a little bit. Um, are you still taking, you know, are you, is that still a big part of what you're doing out there? Are you taking lots of photos and kind of um, staying on that for, I mean, you've got the website, obviously. Oh, yeah. And my website's just a 
very crude, simple, self-made website. It's just a business card, basically. And um, but yep, I'm still uh, shooting pictures. Love doing it. It's my favorite kind of companion hobby to fly fishing. And you know, I had my first picture published when I was 16. So I haven't really lost any energy of what was that one? Where was that published? Oh, it was a black and white picture. I was in a rowboat on uh dry falls lake in central washington and i was in high school and it was yeah black and white picture of me holding a brown trout probably you know finger in the gills that thing yep. and uh just a, a, my buddy in the boat snapped a picture with a i think it was a kodak instamatic you know that old old first point and shoot camera ever made and uh from there just you know went nuts and uh you know i have to admit dave i use my iphone a lot these you days do. and uh yeah the iphone is a good tool these days right yeah i'm ordering the 14 pro max today and uh you know i'm trying to kind of keep up with it i used the iphone 8 for a long long time and sold covers and uh, had hundreds of photos published in websites and you know and different things and half the time you know i don't you know if you send in a file of 40 photographs to a magazine you don't write on which one was taken with an iphone which was taken no. with a pro cam no. you know canon camera no idea they're just images and you know what people select a lot of iphone shots and huh. they may not work as well you know blown up large you know poster oh, right. size or something but man they're so handy and you know i do presentations to fly clubs and i have since 1976 and the most popular presentation right now is one I do just on iPhone photography. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, everybody's got one, you know, or a smartphone of some kind. Yeah, exactly. And it's always in your pocket. And so yep. it's always there. So you can capture totally just random, amazing, you know, weather yep. scenarios or, and they're waterproof now too, for the most part, which is another bonus. Yeah. If you can, you know, I've cracked my, I think, you know, if you crack your front screen or your camera cover, I don't know if they're very waterproof oh, after no. that, but, uh, yeah. I'm hard on cameras, but what does that look like? So these, I'm interested in this little, um, uh, presentation you do. So when you do take us there a little bit on the presentation on the photography, what, what does that look like? Are you just given kind of like, uh, you know, 50 tips on, uh, you know, taking photos with your phone? Yeah, it's basically the two, two or three things that I think are really important. One is don't torture fish. You know, we, we don't all have to take a picture of every fish we catch and hold it inside a boat and, and have it flop around, you know, that sort of stuff. I, I address discreetly yeah. and not insultingly and, yeah. and just try to, you know, let's make some, let's take your pictures from good to better to best and, and take care of our fish too. So I kind of start out with, and I invite people, whether it's over a zoom meeting with a fly club or an in-person meeting, I just invite everybody, bring your phones, you know, and have them in your hand. And we're all going to walk through this together and just go through the basic features and modes that are on mm. a, on a phone. It's unbelievable when you really dive down into all the filters and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, we use, I suppose 90% of the time people use photo, just a standard photo. And then you can like on a 13 that I have now, you can have the wide angle, the standard and slightly telephoto. And, and, and if you've done that, you've noticed that 
your quality really goes down when you go up into the higher telephoto ranges, you know, but yeah. So I go through all the features and, you know, the different things you can do in portrait mode and slow-mo and just then automatic timer and, mm-hmm. and just tons of things, the, how your camera works. Yep. And then I go into just basic tips, um, not, you know, pro photography lingo, just, you know, hold your camera sideways, use your thumb on the volume button. That's your shutter. You know, you don't always have to push the dot in the middle or down at the bottom to make the shutter click. You can use the volume buttons and you can hold your camera right at water level and then bring a fish up out of the net and you just bring it, you know, eight inches from the fish's face and click and then let it go. And it's a one second shot. And those are generally really quite nice, real low to the water, just three quarters of the fish and off it goes. And so, and then I get into things and this is what I find super common among anyone who takes a picture is let's say that the overall human population is about five foot 10. Okay. So there's our average. Oh yeah, there's taller, there's shorter, but let's say yeah. five ten. So everything we see all our lives is from that same perspective, that same elevation or height. And so consequently, you know, it's kind of boring. And I like yeah. to look for little hills to get on or stand up on a cooler in a boat to get some elevation or then get super low right down to the water surface where we don't see that perspective every day. And that just makes pictures more interesting, I think. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so if a person is landing a fish and it's down there, he's generally made, a, if you're waiting, a lot of muddy water where you're actually standing. If you're up at, you know, I'm 5'8", so I'm taking a picture from 5'8", looking down at them. I'm just going to get a guy kind of squatting with a fish in muddy water. It's just not very pretty. But if you take a knee and put your, you know, your phone at water level where your knuckles are actually touching the water and you use the volume button to click from really low, then now instead of muddy water, I get the background, which could be right now fall colors, mm. blue sky, white puffy clouds. And and so just little things like that is, is taking your pictures from good to better to best. And, mm. um, and I don't mean being, you know, like a kind of an obnoxious movie producer type person, but just having your phone with you all the time, you can do some random little lifestyle photos and, and gear and part of the, yeah. you know, like truck travel and goofing off and right. All the little dogs stuff. and things. It's yeah. fun stuff that you can just pull out your phone, put it in the dog's face, yeah. you know, and boom, <laughs> you got a cool shot. So are you doing a lot of when you get back to, you know, like editing after you get them back to on the computer? Yeah. And, and, you know, when I do a work trip, um, and shooting quite a bit because I'm, you know, I'm going to be shooting the lodge, the food, staff, mm. equipment, boats, helicopters, whatever. There's a lot of photos to go through. And, you know, in the film era, on a trip like that, I'd take, you know, maybe 10 rolls of film, which isn't that much. It's 360 images. But, you know, if you bought the best film available, and you had to send it in to San Francisco to hmm. get it developed. And then you get it back. It was almost a dollar a photo. Hmm. So you weren't just clicking randomly on motor drive. You might only for a jumping tarpon or something like that. But you were pretty selective. But now it's a little more fun to experiment and try things because it's just a click away from deleting. But that being said, uh, after a, a week 
on a trip, there's a day of editing for every day of shooting. And so, yeah. and it's just not deleting, it's sizing, you know, so I make a web version, a print version of the same picture, and then I might crop it a little bit. I might take out a power line or something in the background or uh, a dot on the sky from a some lens dust or something. Who knows? But, um, yep, lots of editing time. And I'm not a big tweaker as far as a lot of color saturation or or tint. Um, I kind of like to, you know, use it as... Keep it natural. Yeah, keep it as natural as possible. I will brighten up a few shots that just kind of, you know, cloudy day, doesn't have that punch. So I may maybe bring up the brightness a little bit. And uh, one thing I like to do, here's just sort of a tip. One thing mm -hmm. I like to do this time of the year, especially with these beautiful fall colors, anytime you have, you have gold, yellow, um, almost reddish colors in, in, a, in a shot. On an iPhone, you'll take the shot and then I'll hit edit and I'll swipe way across until I get to warmth. And it's way right. at the end. Okay. And it hit warmth and I'll boost that up a little bit. And it really makes fall colors pop without right. looking unnatural. It just gives it a little more pizzazz. Uh -huh. And that's a that's that's a nice feature. And I can't do it on my pro camera. And I can't even really do it in Photoshop as well as what right. a uh, iPhone can do. So the editing on an iPhone is really pretty cool. Um, it has a sharpen tool and uh, mm -hmm. Just tons of stuff. And, you know, if someone said, well, what are the four things that are super important in photography? First one is read your manual. Hmm. You know, your camera manual will do so many things. And same thing with, with iPhones and, and phones like that. They just do a lot of different things. And Yeah. Are you going to get like a, like you probably just go on and get a tutorial too, right? Go on YouTube and find an iPhone oh. 14 tutorial and just oh, every, yeah, Yeah. Everything. I do that every once in a while. Um, yeah, because what is the camera? You look at these cameras, they've got like the three lenses, and maybe the 14 now has four lenses. I don't even know the tech, but you know, that's something that's a big difference between the eight, right? Well, you said the eight, I don't think that had the three lenses on it, right? No, uh -uh. no, it had that little skinny oblong lens, and uh, yeah, so that you know, technology is you know, screaming at light speed forward, especially in the camera on these phones. I mean, really, uh, my, my iPhone's a camera first and a right. phone second. And yeah, and actually, it's not even a phone. Do you even talk on the, right? We, well, sometimes we don't even talk on the phone anymore. I know it. Texting and email. It, yeah. It's a lot of, and I noticed that people in my generation still love a phone call. Yeah. But, but my m millennial friends, yep. they answer the phone like, hello. Today's episode is sponsored by Drifthook, who has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos and easy-to-follow guides. And I've got a few of these Drifthook fly boxes, and I can tell you from experience, these are super well-organized. Uh, I've got a Euronymph box, which I'm excited to dig into here as we start getting into uh, the season here. Um, and, uh, and also there's a streamer box I have and some dry flies. And the cool thing is drift hook organizes it and their content they have on their website, which you can check out at drifthook.com just goes through everything and really breaks it down. So if you are new, not sure what to grab, 
or if you just want to get some Euronymphs or some streamers where everything's ready to go, you don't have to worry about choosing things. You can check out these boxes right now. These are fly shop quality flies and they're hand tied and inspected before being carefully packed into their durable double-sided water resistant fly boxes. It's a good package and it's worth the time to check it out and check out Drift Hook right now. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash drifthook. That's D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K. Grab a box and support this podcast and a great company with one easy click. Well, tell me this on your photography. So you've got the the iPhone 14 coming. What is your what's your camera? Your actual like the SOR? Do you still have that? And are you still you know is that around? Oh yeah, I still got a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, and it's great. It really is. It just is you know compared to an iPhone, it's bigger, heavier, harder to travel with, harder to be around water. Not waterproof, I've, right? Yeah, I've been using Canon gear for a long time, but I'm not really you know Chevy Ford Dodge. I I think it's all great. Um, I see beautiful stuff coming from Sony, but uh, yeah, once you, you know, have a collection of lenses, it's pretty hard to make a big switch. So I'm going to ride the Canon thing for a while. And, but, you know, I think things are going to get smaller, lighter, more compact in the future. So those big cameras might be more of a studio type camera, not so much a traveling fishing bum camera, but quality is great. And uh, they're fantastic. Yeah. Are you a, uh, on the, uh, on the, the Chevy Ford, is that, that stuff like, are you kind of a, uh, a pickup sort of what, what's your, what, what type of vehicle are you like more of a van type or a pickup type guy? Oh, on automobiles. Yeah. Uh, pickup with a canopy. So, but I'm looking for a new canopy. I've got a, I'm Dave, I've got a 2005 Toyota Tundra that is indestructible yeah nice but they get horrible gas mods 13 miles a gallon there you go well it hasn't got much better over the years i mean unless you get a like a new like a hybrid or something like that there's still the gas cars are still getting about you know pretty crappy mileage yeah i i bought a little tiny uh, my friends call it my learner's permit car it's a chevy avio it's a little four-door but it gets almost 40 miles a gallon it has these little tiny tires a little bit bigger than my riding mower uh-huh. But it's embarrassing to be seen in public, but I can throw, I can put a nine foot fly rod inside and zip up to railroad ranch on Henry's fork and back and spend about, you know, maybe a gallon and a half. Right. And uh, in my truck, that would be a $40 trip. No so, kidding. Yeah. So yeah, I like, I pretty much have to have a truck and, um, when you have a canopy, you know, you're kind of got a camper. So yeah, you do. But I, but I, you know, I like to tow a boat and okay. raft. And so, yeah, I need a yeah. truck and yeah, you, th- and you throw in chugger hunting or, oh, yeah. You, know, yeah, you do some bird hunting too. Yeah. You just got to have really good, you know, 10 ply tires and yeah, sturdy truck and, and you're good to go. I, you know, I, I might even look in the future, you know, Toyota's going to make an electric yeah. Tacoma. You know, mm-hmm. hmm, that's kind of interesting. Don't know if I can afford it, but I know, um, I know. My my buddy just bought a uh, a hybrid uh, Ford F one fifty that, and they uh, they also have the Ford has the electric F one fifty now. Yeah, yeah, I've read about it. Yeah, I think that's doing pretty good. So cool. So, and you do a little chucker hunting. So how's that? I mean, you're in there. I'd imagine Eastern Idaho is a pretty good place to be doing some bird hunting. 
Yeah, there's a lot going on, uh, a lot of waterfowl and you know deer and elk and all that. But uh, I'm in between. I'm not really an Oregon resident anymore. I'd have to buy a non-resident license. I haven't lived in Idaho long enough to be a resident, oh. buy a resident hunting license. So I don't mind buying an out-of-state fishing license, which I have in Wyoming, Montana, uh-huh. Idaho, Oregon, and Yellowstone National Park. But uh, hunting licenses are very expensive. So yeah. I'll take a little break. Plus I'm, I'm without a dog right now and really chugger hunting without a dog is oh, a great yeah. form of exercise, but not very productive, especially when you look at wear and tear on your body, on the dog, on your vehicle for an ounce of meat. Yep. So, yeah. um, you know, if anything, I can, when I get my license, I'll, I'll do some waterfowl hunting close by and, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, pheasants are fun and, uh, yeah. So I like to do all that and, and, uh, but really hunting with some friends and having good dogs is what is where the magic is at. And, uh, so I have to kind of replace that now in, in my new location. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, well let, let's take it out here. I, I, I had mousing, you know, we've been trying to set up some, some trips and we're looking at doing some more of this. And we talked about this before, but have you done any of that in recent years? Is that something I know you've done a lot of it up in Alaska, but, uh, is that something you you're still interested in? Oh, definitely. You know, it's, that's just, that just never gets old. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Alaska would probably be the best place to really go for it. Um, and, you know, last two or three trips to Alaska, I've gone to the same spot, the Antioch river, and they just have all season long mousing. So the, my last trip up there was the last season of the year. And, you know, it's even after the kind of the egg season and then flesh season. And, uh, and so you can still mouse through all of that. You know, a lot of places, your guide will say, yeah, the mousing was good in the spring, but, you know, they're on the eggs. They're pretty selective to that. And that's what we're going to do. And then you bead fish. And that's fun. But um, on the Antioch, you know, you can fish the mouse in the third week of September. Oh, wow. It's and still, is this up near, is this Antioch, is that up near the Connect Talk and Kieserock and all that stuff? Um, not exactly. It flows in um, to the Kuskokwim River, which is a giant river that ends up out by Bethel. So the Antioch has the claim to fame of being the northernmost river in North America for rainbow trout and the southernmost river in North America for she fish. And oh. so you really get kind of that Arctic mix uh, we cut 11 different species on a white woolly bugger so um you got you know grayling char rainbows and then all the salmon and there's whitefish and pike and then she fish and she fish are really cool they can be quite selective uh they're mostly feeding on salmon fry and smolt so uh you know, so sometimes you'll luck out and catch one on a white woolly bugger. Other times you have to have pretty neat, realistic bait fish patterns and they can get big, you know, they can get up to 40 inches or more. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's a swing technique and maybe swing with a little twitch and then big surface boils. And, you know, you, you fish after dinner, um, 11 o'clock PM to about 1 AM. It's oh, really? Yeah. It's in the lowest light of the day oh. and they really get on the grab but that's really fun that's a nice yeah. option to have and so on that trip are you going in there and doing a um 
like how are you getting in? Is that like a fly-in sort of thing, drop off, float in the river? Well, you can do that or you can just fly commercial all the way to the little village of Antioch. And then the only real outfitter or lodge up there is Antioch River Lodge. They'll pick you up, then you jet boat up to the lodge and gear up and start fishing. And primarily mouse fishing, if that's your thing. Um, and then the sloughs have really good pike fishing. And then you got this after dinner she fish fishing. So it's really a lot of fun stuff. And even some, you know, fun dry fly fishing. I always take a four weight uh, and just fish some typical Alaska dry flies, humpy, royal wolf, that sort of thing for grayling. And the grayling are big. So I think sort of a magic number with grayling is the same as smallmouth bass. About 19 inches is when your smallmouth bass is a big fish. Yeah. And it's also when you can call a grayling big and a 19 to 20 inch grayling is a beautiful fish and they're fun. They're just iconic fish of the North. And so between the mousing, throwing some pike, some dry fly grayling and some she fish, and then you've got some salmon around all the time. And yeah, I mean, that's just so much fun. And I know you've been going to Alaska, so yeah, it's just fun to have that mix of stuff because we all love our tackle and it's fun to have, five fly boxes of everything from poppers and giant streamers to, you know, little dry flies and everything in between. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're looking at going next year, maybe. And we're kind of looking at that in uh, kind of the July trying to hit the, trying to hit, you know, the fish aren't as big, but I think overall in the rivers, um, I mean, you've got like, now is the connect talk, how far is that? That must be down river from. Yeah. It's down latitude down in Alaska, but yeah, it's another river that's got a lot of, uh, you know, it's got mouse fishing. It's got swinging for kings. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Have you have you done? I mean, have you up in Alaska? Have you done just a, a bunch of rivers, or do you always have a, a, a little set of rivers you kind of go back to, or you've gone back to? I have fished a lot because in the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands, I was a sales rep, so I had Alaska in my territory, and that oh. included all the fly shops, all the sporting goods stores, and lodges, and that's not just Bristol Bay. There's not a lot of retail out there, but I got to, you know, to fish and work in Kodiak, you know, Ketchikan, Fairbanks, um, going on the highway north of Anchorage towards Denali. And so I'd rent a car when I could. And, um, you know, I just fish a day, work a day. And, you know, you can fish after work till midnight. And at times I would take my little rental car all the way up to Fairbanks and see a couple fly shops up there. And then if I had a weekend or something, I just go North and I would drive these dirt roads. I drove all the way to the Arctic circle. And in fact, it was in a little town called circle Alaska on the Yukon river. And there were moose and bears and it was really, really neat. So I got to know Alaska just for not having an airplane. I got to know it really, really well. And then some of the bigger lodges were good customers for, you know, flies and with Sims or, whoever I was working for at the time, Patagonia, Orvis, Scott, scientific anglers. You know, so I had a good uh, bunch of gear. And uh, so, man, King Salmon, Knack, yeah. Bellingham. Kings. Kings are pretty cool swinging for Kings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. that's a, Yeah, we're excited to, to get up on that and do some, yeah, get some King action. Seems like the Coho is, is, is kind of, uh, I don't know, it seems like the Kings are kind of a whole nother level above like just stripping for Coho. Oh yeah. The grab from a, 
you know, 18 pound to 30 pound King, that yep. first initial tug, it's, it's right up there. It's not yep. as exciting as maybe a tarpon take, but it's the power the power like what have i got you know you don't know for a while and it's that mystery of the 50 foot handshake out there just going whoa whoa yeah and like whoa boy here we go right that is amazing nice okay well this is i'm glad we touched on that a little bit the the mousing Uh, but what it be if you just take us out like with the mousing tip what is your one somebody's got all the gear got all the flies what do you tell them and they're sitting there trying to get them is it pretty easy or are there any tips you really need to know oh i don't think it's too difficult i think like with a lot of other styles of fly fishing, moving is critical. I don't think you're going to talk a fish into eating a mouse on your fifth cast into the same spot. Okay. But, you know, picking pockets, logs, log jams, keep moving, covering more water. And you sometimes find a spot, an eddy with a big log jam or something where there'll be a density of fish, maybe eight or 10 fish in there. And so you can have some repetitive action that's great uh, a lot of times it's just one fish on one log but yeah i'd say just moving making good casts you know twitching mm-hmm. it around logs and overhanging branches and things like that it's uh yep. yeah that's it yeah they're sitting on the around the wood right yeah most people just don't move a lot um yeah i think just covering water being more physical wading across back channels fishing little lagoons back in the you know the boonies uh and it's just, I uh, just love that stuff. Yeah. I love it. Nice. Well, we'll, uh, yeah, I guess you got probably this, this, uh, we're going into like November, December. Now, are you looking, you got a trip with like 11 angling coming up sometime this winter or what's that look like? Yeah. In a couple of weeks, I'll be heading down to Cedar Lodge, South Island, New Zealand. Um, it's been closed for two years because of oh, COVID. Wow. So we've got to get that place all going. It's super neat. You know, it's a fly yeah. helicopter fly out every day to the most oh, wow. beautiful places ever. And then, and I'll uh, host a magazine. I'm hosting a magazine writer down there with Gray Sporting Journal. And then, oh yeah. Then later in the year, um, getting to our we have three lodges in Chile. So, mm. got, you know, there's work to do, and then you know part of that is fishing and having fun. So yeah, it's a great, great way to do it all. Amazing. All right, Brian. Well, until we uh, get on the next one here, we'll you know send everybody out uh, Brian O'Keefe uh, Photography where they can connect with you at Eleven Angling. And uh, yeah, this has been good to catch up with you. Uh, definitely always fun to hear where you're heading next, and uh, definitely look forward to catching up with you hopefully on the water sometime. Well, Dave, that would just be great. You know, because I in high school I fished. You're in the Halem, Oregon, right? Yep. Yep. So then the Halem was kind of my home river. I could get out of school at one o'clock as a senior. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and I'd run over. I fished that hole in the Halem, knew it like the back of my hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, so what high school did you go to? Well, I was in my senior year was in Lincoln High School, downtown Portland. My oh, mother, yeah. my mother taught at Portland State University. So we spent a year there and or I did. And then I went off to New Zealand after that. But um yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. And the Halem hasn't, you know, really changed a whole no. lot over the years. Still and, tiny. And you can go crabbing in the bay and yep. up and yep. down, you yep. know, to really cool river. Yeah, it's a good, uh, yeah, for all that. I mean, definitely lots of fishing. And steelhead, of course, is the big thing, one of the big things. But um, but this is good, Brian. Well, thanks again for taking the time today and uh, looking forward to catching up with you on, on the next one. All right, Dave. I really appreciate it. It's always fun talking to you. So there you go wetflyswing.com slash 382. 382 uh, is going to uh, get you a few of those bonuses we always talk about. I know there's going to be a video or two in there. You can check that out right now. 
as we get into the holiday season, uh, a good way to uh, to get a good uh, stocking stuff or a present is to check out uh, some of our sponsors and see what they have at their websites. Anybody we talked about today, it's a good chance, or you can go over to uh, wetflyswing.com slash sponsors and check it out right there and support them during the holiday season and you support us and we support your journey through all the content that we're going to be putting out here. And we are going to be doubling down next year would definitely love to hear if you've got something we've been missing or something you want to hear us go back into a little bit deeper. Send me a message uh, anytime, Dave at Wetfly Swing. And then uh, Wetfly Swing on social would love to hear from you if you get a chance. And, uh, and we can take it from there. We are setting up and planning some really cool trips this year. So I'm excited to connect with a few people uh, on the water. Uh, this year, we've got something, we've got a couple of saltwater trips we're, we're going to be checking in on early this coming year. So if you have a spot, saltwater trip, something you've been thinking about doing. I know I've talked to a few people out there that have said, uh, you know, there's a number of those bucket list trips that we always talk about, you know, Belize, uh, Bahamas, um, some of these places, the, the Grand Slam. The Grand Slam, that would definitely be nice. So Tarpon, I think Tarpon is definitely is definitely going to be crazy. So uh, so let's do this. I'm going to get out of here because we're going we're gonna to get this uh, off to Dom and we're going to get off to the next one. And, uh, and I want to get on the water with you. But if you get a chance, you can check with me online as well if we can't connect on a trip on the water anywhere. And, uh, and I hope you are having a good evening, a great morning, or if it's afternoon, I hope you're having a great afternoon. And I hope you have a good day. Look forward to catching up with you soon. And we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.